0: Marty good. Headphones on? Yeah. Yes, please.
1: Do you help me with these headphones? Hello? Uh, maybe you could pull down the
0: Good afternoon and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. we got someone who's been making New Haven tick longer than most people around, State Senator Martin Looney, who is the State Senator from the 11th District in New Haven. He is the President Pro Tem. I think today I'm going to ask you what Pro Tem means. Right. President Pro Tem of the State Senate. And he's running again for re-election this year. Martin Looney is also the first person who ever appeared on WNHHFM when we started in 2015. And it's always a pleasure to have you back. Hi, Marty. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Paul. There. Great to be with you today. What is pro tem?
1: Well, it's a term means uh, uh, pro tem means uh, uh, temporary. But in, in this case, that uh, doesn't really apply. But in many cases where you have a, uh, a case where the, the uh, or technically the lieutenant governor is actually the. Uh, the presiding officer of the of the Senate, but doesn't you know have any you know appointed powers, meaning within the Senate. But the but then the president pro tem, uh, meaning temporary, is the actual president of the Senate.
0: Is this an archaic leftover from colonial times or something? It's it is pretty old. Yeah, it's it's a pretty pretty old tradition. Like right? Why can't we yes. just call you the president? Oh, because the state lieutenant kind of governor, like the vice president, presides over the That's Senate. That's right. right. That's right.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. learn something today, It's Mark, also learned- like differently, like in the House of
1: Representatives. That is always ironic. Is that the, the leader of the house is the speaker, but the speaker almost never actually speaks uh, on bills. Whereas, and the, whereas in the Senate, the, 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 the president usually gives the, uh, the summation speech at the end of on a major bill anyway. Yeah.
0: But, so how do you think speakers that again, another kind of archaic? Form? I think so. Yeah. Or was it there actually was the role
1: mostly speaking when it started? Yeah, I think it's uh, but for some reason, it you know, it's true. I think in, uh, in, uh, in Washington and in, in most states, the, uh, it is the, the majority leader in the House who gives the summation speeches uh, in floor debate. Uh, and the speaker, it's a very rare occasion when the speaker will come off the podium and actually speak on a bill. That's so
0: interesting. Well, I'm going to ask you to speak, Martin. Lutheran. I'm <laughs> going to speak about three things today. I want to talk to you about the session that just ended in Hartford. Even though it's what they call a short session where you're one month less than other years and you don't do the main two-year budget, a lot got done. I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about your running for re-election, what issues you're looking at. And then I want to ask you overall of some of the state and federal elections coming up because you have election season for that, too. Sure. But let's start with the session. Um, we talked for we went on the air that one of the big foci, of, or foci of, the, of the session was children's health and children's education, that because of the pandemic, there seemed to be an extra push for dealing with mental health concerns for children as well as catching up with schools because of time lost in in-person learning during the pandemic. Is that accurate? That's so, accurate. Uh, so what happened?
1: We were concerned that uh, because of the pandemic, there was so much uh, effective time lost in schools. Uh, in many districts, uh, students didn't do well with uh, with online learning. Uh, there was concern about, uh, about increased stress at home. Uh, we saw a spike in mental health uh, concerns for, for young people. And we felt we really needed to uh, address that this year because we had more resources than we've had. Uh, in prior years, so that, that was a a major focus. Uh, Senate Bill One and Senate Bill Two, uh, and House Bill Five Zero Zero One, all dealt with that, and they were. And they when were, you
0: number Senate Bills, is not your way that you're signaling, Marty. It's a way that we're signaling. That this is it's a major, our
1: top priority, major caucus priority. That's right. So, but uh, you know, that was the uh, uh, the thing that we were concerned both about uh, resources. We wanted to make sure there were more uh, resources for uh, for children in schools. Uh, we know there's a real shortage of. Uh, mental health counseling for students, especially those who need more than what's provided in the schools. Uh, many, uh, parents can't get counseling for their kids outside of school. Many providers don't take insurance. So we're putting more money into that system, more money into the, uh, into the schools. But also we were concerned about the, the very early stages of child development. Uh, we know that many students do poorly in school because when they come to kindergarten, they're not ready for kindergarten. They're really behind developmentally and school becomes a place where they, they become aware of their shortcomings and, they turn off after a while. And uh, and those are the kids who start to become chronically truant uh, when they're about 10 years old and, and wow, are in trouble with is... the juvenile system by the time they're 12 or 13. So we want to so make it's sure the that pre-K thing. Right. Pre-K. We want to make we put a lot more money into into pre-K, into daycare, uh, into uh, 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 birth to three services, uh, care for kids, uh, things of uh, of that nature that were a high priority for us. And we want to make sure that kids get an intervention early on so that they have a fighting chance when they get to school. Uh, you know, my my daughter in law taught at, at intercity schools, and she said it was heartbreaking to see sometimes the the very limited vocabulary that kids had when they came to school. Some had never been even read to, and really no experience with books at all. It was just just a uh, you wonder how can they possibly uh, make up for that time? And that's uh, that's been one of the challenges. Well, of the biggest that's emerged
0: here in New Haven is resistance to a law you folks passed called the right to read. As you know, nationally, when you and I were younger, Marty there was this movement toward whole language learning. You yes. know, some kids learn by looking at a picture, guessing what the word is, or looking at the word and guessing what it might be when you don't sound it out. And the people, Lucy Calkins is the most famous example, designed the curriculum based on that for 50 years, have reassessed based on brain science studies the last 20 years, saying the kids actually need the heavy focus on phonics and that the people we thought might need the variations most who were behind the achievement gap actually need Return to that focus. So you guys passed a bill saying that you have to have curriculum starting the next year, not upcoming year, year after, for that early age, really K to three, to teach them in what's called structured literacy with a more focus. New Haven is resisting. They're saying the people who are saying this are in charge, kind of our our generation, and they're saying we like the way we did it. We think that makes more sense. Went on to this new fad. There's kind of a showdown. Gary Winfield went there. He's state senator and told the city, you're really going to have to get in line with this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because that's really left the kids behind.
1: The city should absolutely get in line with this. Uh, I think it's appalling that what the reading levels are in the New Haven public schools. Um, you can defend the system if it's working, but it is not working. I think what was the a recent uh, study, I think, showed that only, like, I think it's 28% of kids in New Haven are reading. Third at grade graders, level. yeah. In third grade, well, that's a, that's failure. So you and need in to one do something measure, was
0: 87 were below in one measure. Yes. And yeah. then in math, it was even worse. Yeah. Right.
1: How can you defend that? Uh, when it's so when the results are so appalling.
0: I guess what they're saying is that this is the latest fad, but kids need different kind of approaches because not every kid learns with one size all. The response to the other is that's a very small percentage of kids. You can get that help, and that the other stuff you're talking about, like making reading fun or, you know, having positive attitudes towards books can be part of that curriculum. But what the shift is to have a much bigger focus on sounding out they actually said it hurt the kids when you tried we didn't think it used to. That if you're saying, guess what the word is based on what it looks like, or based based on a picture in a book, what word that is, they thought that actually hurt the kid's ability to read.
1: Well, the primary responsibility for education is at the state level. Mm -hmm. The state delegates authority to the municipal level, but the municipalities are supposed to carry out state policy.
0: So what can you do as a state senator? You pass the law. New Haven's dragging its feet about it complying. Is there any role for you at this point? Is that now up to the State Board of Education to say well, yes Well, I think no? it's
1: primarily up to the State Board, but, uh, but obviously Senator Winfield and I are concerned about it. Uh, I believe other members of the delegation are. Um, so uh, I think there are ways that we can apply pressure as well.
0: And I'm also wondering the time that's going to be lost. Like, if ultimately the state has to say yes or no to a waiver, that's going to be another year. So they've just gotten a whole bunch of new books in that teach the old way. And if they're fighting, I'm just wondering how we're going to get out of this right now in New Haven with the overall majority of our kids not learning to read and this fight over whether we're going to go with what the science is telling us is better, although that's always a tricky sentence. I don't know. Any thoughts about how we can get past this impasse?
1: Well, I think part of it is the, the legislation we passed that uh, we need to make sure that kids are prepared for kindergarten when they get there so they're ready to read. Uh, and, uh, you know, kids who come from, from homes where there's more educational enrichment, many of them are already at least beginning to read by the time they get to kindergarten. And uh, and, and so they've already jumped over several of those hurdles that, uh, too many kids in New Haven are still struggling with in third, fourth grade and beyond. So yeah. I think the focus on early childhood will be, be an assistance in that.
0: Right. And, um, you know, it's was interesting that the student member of the board of ed said at that board of ed meeting that a lot of his colleagues in high school can't sound out basic words when they read. Yes. That's yeah. sad, Marty.
1: It is terribly sad, right? We yeah. need to be something, doing something better for those kids and not just, uh, let an educational bureaucracy say, oh, we got to do this because that's what we've been doing recently.
0: Yeah. And Marty, yeah. mental health also has been so sad. It's not just in schools we see in schools. That's where the rubber hits the road often in public discussion about civic issues. But, you know, you've heard from all the teachers, from the kids, about everyone bouncing off the walls from the problems that existed before, but got so much worse in COVID had a, act in schools. So you said you passed a bill that's going to have money, more mental health counselors available in the classroom. And after you passed that bill, didn't the federal government also in the gun bill, the Chris Murphy, the bipartisan gun bill, didn't that also include money for mental health services? In yes, schools? I believe that
1: does. Uh, there'll be some extra money in that. If I can just run down some of the, uh, the spending that we did put in the bill, some specifics, there's mm-hmm. uh, $10 million in new money for mental health services at school-based health centers. And uh, $30 million for increased 24-7 mobile crisis services for kids. And so $30 million for that? $30 million, And then uh, uh, also uh, um, $70 million for child care industry wage enhancements. Because so we know mm-hmm. that so many people who work in the in the child care field are so
0: bad. Remember they had that walkout, quote, unquote, one yes. morning in New Haven, Georgia Goldblum and her her coalition. They have a good coalition in New Haven. Yes. So you know better than I do. Of providers who said without that money, they could they were going out of business. Absolutely, many of them were
1: just there, they're operating on a shoestring, and that shoestring is frayed. Um, and we have 15 million to renovate and construct new early childhood facilities, and uh, oh, okay. so there, there's a lot, uh, a lot in there. And then we're looking at the school situation too. Uh, uh again, in the wake of COVID, everybody's much more aware of uh, dangers. And we put 75 million <laughs> to update school air conditioning and uh, and heating systems. Oh, we need that in New Haven, <laughs> Well, we need that yeah. in New Haven in many ways yeah. because of inadequate maintenance. We spent so much money over the years uh, building new schools in New Haven and renovating other schools. It was about a $1.5 billion project at which uh, the state contributed about $1.2 billion. And here we hear shortly afterwards that, uh, in many cases, that uh, heating and cooling systems are uh, needing significant repairs, in some cases only because they never change the filters regularly. And all of a sudden, you have to have massive repairs where just regular maintenance would have deferred all of that. I mean, that's that's just uh, uh, just outrageous. So uh, we are going to man- we are going to uh, mandate the Board of Ed, um, uh, make schools uh, more accountable and make sure they document, you know, what their regular maintenance schedule is on their equipment since we've given them uh, so much money on this. Also, we there is uh, eight million dollars uh, also for uh, increasing access to uh, to town run summer camps uh, for kids uh, as well. So there's there's new funding on uh, on all fronts, both for. Uh,
0: so you were able to put a lot of money toward kids. Yes. And uh One of your colleagues said to me, you know, we've been up there for years when we always said there's not enough money to go around. There was this money that flowed in for pandemic relief, money that flowed in through higher um, than expected revenues. We just read about that yesterday. Is this a one-off? Like, are we doing things that we're going to be able to do long-term? Or is a lot of this stuff, if you're constructing facilities, I guess that doesn't need to be long-term?
1: No, well, that's something that we hope we'll we'll have long-term benefit after the one-time expenditure and things we do through. Well, some of it will be bonding, and then those uh, bonds are paid off over a period of years. But... But we hope that we will be able to keep this going because it is uh, um, necessary since we've been underfunding in many areas since uh, the last great recession back in 2009. So we've had uh, we had about 12 difficult years before we finally got to the time where we could uh, catch up in in so much of this area. So, for instance, uh, uh, we increased the the state earned income tax credit for the working poor uh, to 41 and a half percent. And
0: of what they get from the state, uh, what
1: they get from the federal. Right. So uh, we had instituted that program some years ago at 30%. uh, It went down to twenty. percent that's sort
0: of been your number one poverty-fighting measure that I've watched you champion in terms of you don't even have a Democratic governor who's willing to raise marginal income tax rates on the wealthy. So it sounds like people who are concerned about poverty level, getting people out of poverty, have been focusing on tax credits really since Bill Clinton's day as the way that's going to be the next best way to help people get above the Well, that's right. We
1: passed the EITC at the state level back in 2011. Um, Prior to that, uh, both Governor Roland, and Governor Rell had said that was a deal breaker in terms of the budget. They were completely against it. And the reason was they could never get beyond the fact that it was a refundable credit. They kept saying, well, these people don't pay taxes. They don't pay income taxes because they're generally below the threshold where you have tax liability. Our argument was they pay plenty of taxes. They pay sales taxes in a disproportionate amount. They pay property taxes through their rent. They pay car taxes. They pay sales taxes. They pay everything except income tax. But uh, finally, we were able to get that passed. Governor Malloy embraced it. We passed it in 2011. It wound up getting scaled back uh, a little bit in 2017 when we had to deal with the Republicans to pass a budget. It went down to 23. We got it back to 30.5 and now uh, to 41.5 in this budget. So uh, I know Speaker Ritter and I are committed to to try to keep it at that high level going forward. Also, the uh, uh, the child tax credit that we passed this year. Um, we're committed to try to make that a
0: permanent feature as well
1: at $250. And they did a good job in the last Market.
0: week getting yes. those numbers up by uh, yes. like another 100,000 of people because they actually got to file them. Yes. They got to file to get we that. We have everything. to find
1: a way. Right? If we could find a way to, to have that credit saved. be automatic based upon you know where anybody who, uh, based upon just looking at the return they filed, to be able to determine eligibility from that. Uh, St- they claim that it doesn't necessarily always indicate how old the children are, but like they think there have to be ways around that too. To have it go to people automatically rather than have them have to do a separate filing for it.
0: State Senator Martin Looney of New Haven running for re-election to which term? What number term?
1: Well, this would be my 16th term in the Senate. I was first elected to the Senate in 92, and then I was I served in the House for uh, 12 years before that, six terms.
0: And he's the president pro tempore of the uh, state Senate, which I learned today had to do with an old formulation about being technically temporary because this, the lieutenant governor technically presides over the Senate. Don't right. practice. The real job is done by the pro tempore. Right. Dan P.F. has written a question, Marty. He says, thank you for listening, Dan. Have you seen this year's health insurance premium requests up to 20 percent? Are you going to lead the legislature and finally pressure Lamont if he's reelected? To pass the public option, or will you be giving giving it to lobbyists again? That's a little bit of
1: a well. I've never given it to lobbyists on this, but I've been for the public option from the very beginning. Uh, uh, unfortunately, others have been have been pressured by the insurance industry on this, but I continue to support the public option. I think that uh, we're going to have a uh, a hearing on that uh, coming up in uh, uh, sometime in August. There are tremendous uh, disparities in the rates that are being asked. I think the Anthem rates were generally moderate, but the other two that were in there were just outrageous, going beyond twenty percent. So. We really have to uh, closely examine those. uh... Can you
0: explain something to me about the health insurance industry? Because I have to admit my bias. I believe they shouldn't exist. I don't think there should be private health care. I think it exists only on a business model that gives them incentive to say no to people needing health care. But I realize that's a long discussion. We don't live in la-la land and we have a health insurance industry. So they have to get their rate increase approved, per Dan's question here, by state regulators. Right During the pandemic, when people were using less health care, health insurance companies were making record profits because people were using their services less. They still asked for health insurance rate increases from you guys. Not as big as this year, but it's good. So it seems like when they're making less profit, they ask for increases. When they're making more, and I understand healthcare isn't expensive because you got to cover everybody and healthcare costs a lot of money because we invent more stuff that keeps people living longer. But why do they ask for increases when times are good and not good for them? Like what's the rationale?
1: Well, I think that's something they're going to have to answer in in the in these hearings because there really doesn't seem to be a clear uh, clear rationale for that. I know they the uh, the insurance industry, of course, is very strong and influential in in Connecticut. Uh, uh, probably a little bit less so since we passed uh, public financing of campaigns and other they're barred from uh, from uh, doing direct funding in the way they did before, either for or against candidates. But uh, many people are are cowed by the fact that they they do employ a lot of people in the state of Connecticut, which to me. Uh, seems to be like the same reason why West Virginia has been willing Call, to tolerate poor air all these years because the uh, the coal mining industry is so strong there you know I, so I think, we
0: can tolerate people not being able to afford to get sick right
1: so i think that's too many jobs in the industry, but uh, it seems to me that if you want to do something that benefits three point six million people um, that 's worth it, even though it may not be um, of, uh, something that uh, that an industry that employs twenty five thousand people Likes.
0: And now they employ a lot fewer than they used to correct when we were in the national headquarters. Like, what did the CVS-Aetna merger mean for that corporation being a Connecticut corporation? Yeah, I don't know what the
1: net numbers have, uh, have been. I think there was some decline, but not as drastic as what had been feared at the beginning.
0: All right. Martin Looney, a big issue this term that didn't get a lot of attention, but it makes a big deal, is the Clean Air Act. Yes. We passed the Clean Air Act, and it was yep. environmental legislation, everything from moving our bus fleets, both at schools and the public bus fleets, although one caught on fire last week, so a the battery in Hamden, yep. moving them electric. Um, Roland Lamar is on the Transportation Committee, state rep, said he thought one of the biggest advantages to our air that didn't get attention was light timing so people don't have to stop and start. It's kind of interesting. We're modernizing the traffic lights so that they make sense so you can kind of go at a moderate speed without stopping starting a lot. He thinks that's one of the major contributors. Well, I think it is. And, dirty and Robert air. did a
1: great job on that bill. It was a, it was a joint effort of the, the Transportation Committee and the Environment Committee. So the uh, uh, the four chairs of those two committees worked very closely on it. And uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, pollution that's caused by vehicle idling because of the poor timing of, of lights. And I think that, that uh, uh, Representative Lamar really targeted an issue that's going to make a big difference, especially in cities. But that was uh, one of our priorities. That was Senate Bill uh, number four. Uh, and it, and it, uh, indicates that we want to shift to electric vehicles by requiring that by 2026, at least 50% of cars and light trucks, uh, purchased by the state will be, uh, alternative fueled or hybrid, uh, and, uh, and to 100% by 2030. Uh, we also, uh, in it make a, a commitment to building more charging stations around the state. And I think that the, the, we are going to see a real breakthrough in terms of electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles when people become more comfortable, uh, with the idea of accessibility to charging and also more comfortable about range. People are worried about getting stranded, not being able to get a charge when they need it. And they're also worried about having to spend too much time getting a charge. People are so used to driving into a gas station and being on their way in five or seven minutes, you know, they're they're concerned about having to invest so much time to get a charge. So when the technology develops to the point where charges are quicker and there are more charging stations, uh, in fact, it'd be great if we had a charging station at every gas station, uh, that would be ideal. And then you'll see, I think more people, uh, uh move to electric vehicles. We we did in this provide enhanced incentives for people um, and rebates when they buy electric vehicles. Including
0: and, electric bikes, which I'm still not right, ready to right. try. Yep.
1: Yeah. And we also uh we raised the threshold of the cost of a vehicle that would be eligible for rebate to to mm-hmm. encourage more of that. So that was a, a significant feature of the uh of the of the bill. Uh, along with the uh uh, the traffic, uh, the matching uh, grant program to municipalities for traffic signal upgrades that uh, that Representative Lamar talked about.
0: Were there any thoughts about the lithium battery that caught fire at the Hamden bus depot the other day?
1: Well, I think that's going to
0: be a, a, a uh,
1: uh, we're going to have to examine that closely and make sure that there's not a broad-based risk in the, in the conversion that we're talking about. But ultimately, we want to convert the state's own vehicle fleet, municipal vehicle fleets, and also school buses mm-hmm. uh, to be electric. And that would make a big difference because still uh, a, the greatest amount of our air pollution does come from vehicles. I think it's something like 37 to 40 percent
0: overall. Martin Looney, State Senate President Pro Tem, State Senator from New Haven and Hamden, 48 percent of Hamden. He informed me he represents in half of New Haven, right, roughly east side down to right. downtown. Right. Um, we talk about how when it used to be gerrymandered that Westville was part of the east side district back in the <laughs> day when you first had it. Marty, yeah. there was some little notice legislation passed as well this term under your leadership in the state senate. One of which is the captive audience bill. Do you remember we used to talk about that a lot more back in the day, like end of last century about how management's not supposed to be able on work time in a work setting yeah, force I, you uh, to go uh, to one of my, uh, my assistant, to, uh, to unions?
1: My counsel, uh, Dina Berlin, went through the files, and she found that I had originally introduced a captive audience bill in 2005.
0: I do remember <laughs> you talking about this a long time That's ago. That's right. Yeah.
1: And uh, one of the problems for years was that, uh, arguably, it, it was in, in contravention of the National Labor Relations uh, Act. Oh, uh, and there was concern about that. There was free even, speech
0: uh, on a First Amendment right to, yeah. to force your employees. And there to was, a, there was to... a prior
1: opinion by uh, then Attorney General Jepsen that it might be problematic. Uh, but we had a more recent opinion by Attorney General uh, uh, Tong that, that green lighted it and said uh, that it is now proper. In fact, uh, the uh, the council for the NLRB uh, issued a statement around the time we were dealing with the bill in the spring that it was uh, changing its own guidance on captive audience uh, Legislation and the thought idea that proper. it's not
0: fair that if you're trying to stop a union, you have your employees where they're working, pressuring them in a work setting where the other side can't really do that. Right.
1: right? Well, the key is, Paul, is that there are still, especially in our area now, the world of modern technology and modern communications, there are an infinite number of ways to communicate with employees. They can yeah. uh, they can hand out flyers at work. They can uh, meet and greet them before coming into work, coming out of work. They can call them at home. They can text them. They can email them. They can reach them on social media. But why are they insistent on this one and this one is the one that's the most coercive. And that's why they want it. And uh, they want to be able to herd people into a room and threaten them. Uh, my father experienced that <laughs> twice uh, when he was trying to, when he was one of the people trying to help a union, help the machinist union get into Winchester's. And he told me about this when I was a kid. Uh, the first one he recalled was uh, he was a forklift driver. There was taken off the, told to get off the forklift, get into a room. A Bunch of other people were crowded into a room. Two big, beefy guys uh, shut the door, stood there with their arms folded to make sure nobody even attempted to leave. Wow. The first thing that they were told was that the plant would probably close in two years if a union got in. The second thing they were told was that unions were connected to communism and that their loyalty would be suspect. When was get this? Uh, Mid-50s. Oh, that's when they had, had right. Red Scare. Absolutely. And they were told then that, uh, and then especially they were told that if they were not yet naturalized citizens, and some of them weren't, uh, they could be subject to deportation if they became seen as being friendly to a union. And then they were uh-huh. told that even if you were naturalized citizens, as my father was, I've been born in Ireland, that that could potentially even be revoked uh, if you were associated with unions. So what did he do? They voted for, well, the, and the first time it failed, the union failed narrowly, but then they continued to campaign. I, I remember during that time, uh, he was, uh, the union, the company tried to break him. They hoped to either uh, make him quit or kill him. Uh, they took to him off him. the uh, forklift and put him lifting uh, heavy freight you know, for those two or three years, but he, he toughed it out. And uh, when the union got in on the second time, he got his old job back and then became a union steward, you know, for the last 10 years that he was there until he retired. But there were captive audience meetings, both during the first unsuccessful campaign uh, and the second one. So that's why that's been a crusade of mine for many years. So I'm so, I'm you, so pleased to be really we able to get it across to dad, the line
0: this year. You? you looked up to your dad,
1: huh? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And did you think of him when you were doing this legislation? I sure did. What were you thinking? Like, was there a moment when you thought it, when it passed or something?
1: Oh, when it passed, I said to myself, you know, it took a while, Dad, but we're there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story, Martin Looney. Um, Another bill that didn't get a lot of attention but did pass, was one of those ones that kind of got me outraged, was the predatory pricing of phone calls in prison. That if you're in prison, you want to talk to one of your loved ones, family want to talk to you, you got to pay a whole lot more money than the rest of us pay for a phone call, and that's because some private company had a contract with the state to just make money off this. I mean, that was kind of sick.
1: Yeah, that was, a, that was a bad practice. The state was using the uh, uh, the cost of those calls, making the people calling in uh, to pay collect call rates, and they were using it to uh, subsidize other aspects of, of the corrections budget. So we okay. did pass a bill, we put $3.5 million uh, in to, uh, uh, to reduce, the, to end that practice, so that now the prisoners will be able to make uh, uh, more calls and, and not have the their, uh, their callers go into debt. It's really important because, uh, as you know, most of the people who are in prison are from uh, Hartford, New Haven, uh, Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Britain, and the prisons are located at, at more remote places in eastern Connecticut. So Enfield Summers, Enfield summers and and the uh, uh, Monfield and other places. So and many come from poor families where uh, their family members don't have cars and it's not easy to go visit somebody who's in prison. In fact, we know in New Haven, there are some census tracts where more than 40 percent of the households don't even have cars. So uh, and But studies also show that those prisoners who are able to keep in close contact with their family while they're incarcerated uh, do much better in reentry. When they come out, they're part of a network. They haven't lost contact. So that we think that is really just something that's part of our of our approach toward uh, toward effective rehabilitation.
0: State Senator Martin Looney, we've been talking about what happened this past session in Hartford here on Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. And we're going to pivot to what he's hoping to have happen next if he's reelected. And gets to serve a 16th term, or is it 17th?
1: Uh, It would be 16th. 16th
0: term in the state Senate. And here's the transition issue. One thing you and I just did not talk about for a half hour is the thing that Democrats are talking most about this past session, which I find interesting. Democrats running for election talk about how much they cut taxes, which is what you usually hear Republicans talk about, right? So Dezlemont early on knew that when he ran re-election as governor, he was going to be attacked as someone... Raising taxes, so he made sure he didn't raise any taxes. And then when we got all this COVID money, he invested in in uh he included short term tax cuts to the gas tax, the kind of things that liberals traditionally hated because they say it doesn't really save people that much money. In fact, you know you you it could have worse impacts for people when you don't have money left for other kinds of spending if you're cutting the gas tax, and it does, and it encourages driving, and it expires once an election is over. It seems like the Democrats did they take are they emphasizing this to take the issue away from the Republicans? What, why are we hearing so much about tax cuts?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, many Democrats uh, uh, want to point that out that uh, uh, they're not just profligate spending, want to be responsible. Uh, some of the the reductions, uh, some of the ones you mentioned really are beneficial to um, uh, moderate income people, so for instance, the uh, free bus rides up until oh, bus is. Great. I mean, that's right, important yeah. for poor people, as I said, there are so many people who just Can don't we have make cars. that permit. I would support uh, uh, doing that. We have to see. But the problem is, again, we have to balance that with the needs of our, our special transportation fund, which we use for all of our, our infrastructure purposes. But I think it's an important thing. The gas tax cut of uh, 25 cents was important. Also, uh, we're hearing from businesses close to the uh, Massachusetts line that they're doing the gas stations up there are doing very well because Massachusetts hasn't cut there. So oh. gas is cheaper up in the in northern part of Connecticut. Uh, I would wish I would hope that the federal government would do the same thing by Suspending their 18 cent uh, gas tax And that would help make a difference also But uh, that was an important one I think also the uh, uh, One of the things that uh, I've been working on for a long time Was the uh, the car tax right. uh, And that was something that uh, That's a different issue That's the, that's unfairness,
0: the unfairness That if fairness of of it, that car, town, right, you have the same car In a well car You twice as much Wildly
1: different made. rates In different yeah. communities Even though you can say The real estate is sensitive to location But a, a car is the same car everywhere So uh, this year we were able to cap The car tax rate At, uh, uh, at a little over 32 mils So uh, no one will have to pay more than 32 mills. It'll benefit taxpayers in about 75 communities, including New Haven, and including Hampton. New Haven and Hamden. New Haven uh, residents will benefit by about five point eight million dollars. And the city will be made whole by the state for that gap. And in Hamden, it's even more significant. Because they because have higher. Bill bill rate rate is higher. Yeah. In Hamden, it's an almost a seven million dollar benefit
0: uh, to the taxpayers. And
1: then also but the town is being
0: made whole. And what I love about the cut debate is where you guys differ from the Republicans. Seems to me, but maybe you can help me understand it better because I'm on the outside. Seems to me a complete reversal of how Democrats and Republicans used to talk about budgets. So you, you guys, addition to cutting taxes, the Democrats, which control, control the legislature and the governors, they squirrel with this bounty, this one-time bounty, you've shored up the rainy day fund to its maximum, like $1.5 billion or something. And you also pay down some of our long-term pension obligations because we haven't been funding our pensions. So you basically saving billions over a course of year and the Demo- the republicans ever ref- criticized you for conservative budgeting they said that you should cut the taxes more now because it's a rainy day am i right that that's flipping what used to be the democratic republican argument
1: it is so again if you went back to the days when uh, uh when john roland was uh, was governor uh we had democrats at the time you know in the late 90s we had a boom period you know the dot com boom and all that and we had surpluses during that time the republicans attacked us for overtaxing uh, then we said at the time that it would be a good time to start uh, putting more into the pension funds. And Roland rejected that and instead insisted on that rebate, that $50 rebate program. <laughs> so an opportunity that we really fell behind in our payments into both the teachers pension fund uh, and the state employees pension fund uh, during all of those uh, Roland and Rell years when they refused to uh, do anything to his great credit. I think Dan Malloy deserves credit for yeah. in 2011 when he came in, even though things were tough. He insisted every year that we would make the actuarially required pension payment. Uh, Despite that, it made it much more difficult to get budgets done.
0: And then, Martin, what are some of the um, major issues, work that has not yet been completed that you want to work on if you're reelected?
1: Well, one that we started this year and I hope to continue next year was uh, uh, one of the issues that affects many municipalities is the cost of special education. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often that's uh, uh, not budgetable because you never know when a very expensive special ed uh, case is going to move into your district and the school is responsible. Uh, The law had said that once a municipality spends four and a half times their per-pupil expenditure, then the state is supposed to pay uh, the balance, the excess cost. But the state has only been paying uh, 66% of that for years. So what we did this year, uh, it, it put $15 million in the budget, to, again, to use uh, essentially the the pilot-tiered formula that we passed last year, uh, and that the, the poorest towns, those with the lowest net grand list, will now get 76% instead of 66% reimbursement. The middle tier will get 73%, the third tier will get 70 so everyone will get more than the 66 that's currently there. Uh, and that's something I would like to see increased and ratcheted up until we
0: get closer to full funding. Now, something you did that we you've been trying to do for decades was the other kind of pilot. Payments in lieu of taxes because, and I won't go into the whole thing, but you know we pay, we get much more state tax-exempt property in our cities over half in New Haven. We can't tax it, and we are underfunded in those reimbursements. You got us an extra $49 million each year. You kind of doubled what we got from the state every year. Right. Our entire adult lifetime, politicians have said the only reason taxes are so high in New Haven is because of this unfair tax situation. If the state would only give us more pilot money, we would be on the same level as other people, other towns. So you delivered; we doubled it. We got another any count money from Yale was over fifty million we didn't have before, but taxes still went up. Why was that?
1: Well, I guess they uh, they did come down this year. I guess they were New Haven the rates at thirty nine
0: point seven five. No, but when you when you went with the um increase in the grand list, the average person's New Haven taxes are going up. Yes. If well, that's had,
1: a, uh, a matter of city budgeting, and I I assume that they'll be coming down you know, next year when it's a city election year. Uh, but it's uh, not
0: your responsibility. I'm just wondering if we need to rethink our paradigm. We always thought the issue was Yale doesn't pay taxes; the state makes it not tax property if they only gave us the money. So you delivered the money. Finally. Yes, you did this yes, new coalition yes, yeah. of medium-sized towns and dealt them into the benefits of this plan. Right. It was really smart organizing, but I guess people, some people say that means the city's financial p- situation was much more precarious and that Ned Lamont actually wanted us to go into Barb. Some people say as a condition for getting that pilot money, which we didn't do. Do you know anything about that? Or?
1: Um, yes, there was some uh, concern of, at the time that, uh, uh, that New Haven was uh, some of the benchmarks were not being met and that it might be a candidate for uh, for Marb. Uh, uh, we didn't think it was that necessary. Certainly New Haven was uh, not in the situation that, that West Haven is in chronically um, and believe that the city could uh, could manage itself. I think that, you know, Mary Elliker has done a, a, a reasonable job, but I think there are certain areas of the, of the city budget that need to be uh, put under better control and scrutiny, like the, like the education system, as we said, that's such a big part of the budget uh, and needs to be more closely
0: examined. And Marty, another issue you talked about, you tried to pass a bill that you know, time takes a few years to build support for a bill for medical Miranda rights, meaning if you're arrested and you're saying you're injured, you should get medical attention. Obviously, that blew up after, right after the session when Randy Cox was being transported in a police van, hurt his spine and neck, couldn't move, they didn't believe him, and then dragged him across the floor and might have permanently paralyzed him. Do you think that's going to enable you? to pass that next term, and do you plan to reintroduce that Yes,
1: I will. We did pass it in the uh, Senate. Senate, uh, Unanimously, I think. And uh, it was not taken up in the House for whatever reason It got cut cut up in the crunch of the last week. Uh, But that bill came out. I was approached by uh, a couple of physicians' organization from uh, Massachusetts who were connected to uh, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital and a couple of other hospitals and said there's a gap here in medical care that people sometimes are injured or ill and don't get immediate medical attention when they are arrested. So, uh, that's what I put in the bill for. And then we saw that the tragic case of, uh, of Mr. Cox, because I think it's also beneficial to the police because they're not medical people. They don't know uh, when someone complains of chest pain or headache or an injury at the time of arrest, whether it's real or serious or how much. So if they take that person uh, to the emergency room to get a determination, all it means is that the, the processing of the arrest will take a little more time, uh, but it will be safety both for the police and not being uh, accused of uh, of medical inattention and uh, also safety for the person who's claiming injury.
0: So, Martin Looney, we're talking on Dateline New Haven, um, WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. We just spent a lot of time talking about laws, writing laws that bring money to the city, writing laws that make life fairer for people. Your opponent has raised a perspective that's really common to many of the races across the country this year. He's arguing that politicians who spend too much time making laws, sitting in a room with other politicians and writing legislation or out of touch with the people and he said if he's elected he's not going to spend time doing that he thinks the experience of politicians in office is bad not good you're seeing this in other uh races too that you should be out there among the people instead of being up there in rooms making laws how, how do you feel about that
1: well first of all that's what challengers uh, always say about incumbents well you know um uh, uh he's not connected to the people to the district and i will be well um that is certainly not true in this case i i do both parts of the job i'm um, in Hartford and active there and uh, trying to be uh past legislation, but I'm also uh, involved in the, in the community at home, um, uh, with community groups, with
0: organizations. Uh, uh, and I guess your answer, to that would be what what's the vote when you run.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the issue is, I think that the job of being a legislator is somebody who is, uh, is, uh, is skilled at understanding issues and passing legislation. Uh, and also uh, someone who keeps in touch with the constituents at home, you know, prior to the pandemic, I would have regular, Uh, Saturday morning meetings with the state reps in my district so we hear from people Uh, since then when it wasn't possible to do that during COVID um, I've had uh, tele-town hall meetings Uh, I'm out and around at church the grocery store the dry cleaners the barbershop the uh, uh, talking to people on the the green and everybody I meet and uh, uh, going to community meetings the the last uh, uh, few days I was at uh, a meeting with the uh, workers from Unite Here in 2017 celebrating the uh, uh, successful unionization of the graduate. The graduate uh, that was great, so yeah. that was a great moment. Well, in and, uh, addition
0: to that issue, Marty, which yeah. is a real issue, like you're right there, we say you're not connected. You're not. We don't see you, whatever. Yes. What about the issue about experience? Like some people say, most Republicans are running saying it's bad if you've been in office writing laws because you're part of the problem. Is a legislator, should a legislator be a legislator? Should a legislator write laws? Should a legislator gain experience in how laws get passed and how do you get compromises with people who might not agree with you from other communities so that the money can be delivered or the law get passed? Or does the process make you part of the problem?
1: No, I think you have to have um, experience, uh, expertise, and, uh, uh, and skill and substantive knowledge of policy uh, to be an effective legislator. We're seeing this now in, in scholarly studies of states that have adopted term limits. Uh, then in some cases, uh, uh, in severely term-limited states, the legislators are severely inexperienced, Uh, they know staff gets empowered. Yep. What happens, the staff gets empowered, the lobbyists get empowered and the executive branch gets empowered even more than they are now because the legislature is not an effective counter uh, counter because there's just not enough expertise there. Uh, I was speaking with a a legislator from Florida at at a conference I was at and uh, she was telling me that in Florida, uh, the incoming freshman class picks their leaders at that time for their last term when they will be the, the, the senior class. And the person who gets picked as leader is somebody who is from a safe district can raise a lot of money and can spread that around to the other people in, who are running in more contested races. Mm-hmm. That's not a healthy system. Yeah. Uh, in our system, you come in, you work your way up through the committee process, you develop policy expertise, you develop the respect of your colleagues, um, and uh, potentially you make progress and become a leader, chair of a committee or, uh, or a caucus leader.
0: Since you see Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan today, because her point is that the legislative branch is equal. Yes. And yes. that we can have our own foreign policy. And do well, you, you have any thoughts on that? It's not your job. I was just, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. <laughs>
1: Well, I think Speaker Pelosi uh, uh, is uh, is really pr- pr- the best spokesperson for the legislative branch we've seen in a long time.
0: Yeah, and then so in, in Connecticut we have some primaries. You do not have a primary. August ninth is the primaries. New Haven has not had a state-wide um, official since Hank Parker. Is that correct? Elected official since he that's was right. State treasurer. Since he was state treasurer. And what was his last year? Like in the nineties? Something? No,
1: back. I think it was before that. I think he was uh, he was first elected in seventy um, four. Okay, and then I
0: think he was there till eighty two. Oh, you know that's all. That. Yeah, yeah. was an article about him in '84. I thought. Oh, okay, and then boards maybe '86, but it's been so close it was, to forty the '80s years. since we had. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is that going to change? So we have two Demo- two New Haveners out of three are running in a state treasurer primary: Eric Russell and Du Bois Walton. The Dita from uh, Fairfield County is getting the most attention because of her heirs, which may or may not have to do with the actual job, but it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And then in the state Secretary of State's race, you have Stephanie Thomas, who's from Fairfield County. So it's really Fairfield County against New Haven next week. <laughs> and she's got the state endorsement, the party endorsement, so that New Haven Democrats are going door to door for her. But then Maritza Bond is challenging her. She's from New Haven, and she's running with strong labor support. How do you see those races shaping up?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I think the turnout in the Democratic primary will be substantially lower than it was four years ago because there's no uh, marquee race, no governor's primary, no U.S. Senate primary. Uh, Turnout in 2018, when there was a gubernatorial primary, was slightly under 30%. The Republican primary was slightly over 30% because they had an active gubernatorial primary. So I think because of their U.S. Senate primary, uh, they'll probably have a 30% or or more turnout. But I think the Democratic turnout will be under 20% this time.
0: And what will that mean? Um, who wins then? Is it someone, does the party support become more important? Cause that's a fixed number of people who work for you. Does the labor endorsement become important in Ritz Bond's case? The private networks, the way that I mean, Eric Russell has one kind of network of people he's built statewide through his work in the party. Karen Boys Walton has her own network through housing and state education and civil rights work that she's done. How's that going to play out on the ground? What it means is that the, the, the candidates who are,
1: who are best able to identify The primest of the prime voters, because those are the only ones who are going to vote in this election Mm -hmm. uh, and contact and persuade uh, the most of them are the ones who will win, because it's going to take a relatively small number of votes uh, uh, to win. So it's important to be part of a labor network or a uh, 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 other networks that people are aware of, uh, whether it be housing, whether it be uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, investment capacity or investment expertise. So tapping into activist networks is going to be more important. In We
0: have the one through five number like one is likely voter five is. Definitely not going to vote. Two is possible on your side. Three yeah. is neutral. Is this a race where it's, you need ones rather than ones and twos? Does that affect how you do that?
1: Well, I think you need to look at, and I've uh, said this to people that you need, when you send out, when your people are going out canvassing uh, or doing phone banking, you need to look not just the ones and twos, but you need to look at the prior voting history mm. of people. Are these people regular primary voters? If they are, contact them, work them hard, try to persuade them. Because if they're not regularly regular primary voters, they're not going to vote in this primary. Mm. So it's a it's a waste of your time and effort to uh, spend a lot of time on them. This is, as I said, uh, only the prime of the prime voters will participate in this.
0: That's so interesting. Do you have so you, do you want to talk about anyone you might be supporting and why? Uh,
1: well, I'm uh, I'm supporting uh, Karen because I've uh, uh, committed to her about a year ago when uh, um, I, when at the time I said you know it's about time we had somebody from New Haven on the state ticket. You'd be great. Uh, and then she decided to uh, uh, to run for uh, for treasurer uh, surprisingly when when treasurer wouldn't um it dropped out of the race when he did but you know nothing against uh, Eric i think he's a great guy was uh, done a fine job as as vice chair uh, and i'm supporting maritza of course because she's from new haven and um why do we need an elected
0: state treasurer
1: well the, the state treasurer does have responsibility for the uh, for the state's investments although in many cases the the treasurer hires and brings in uh, investment advisors rather than making those decisions personally, but but ultimately the treasurer is the sole fiduciary uh, and is accountable for those uh, for those decisions. So um, I think I think it's good that you have uh, an official separate from the governor uh, who has that authority.
0: So you like the idea of electing the treasurer? Yes, yes. All right. And what what about nationally? Um, what's going the Democrats seem like a tough year this year with high inflation, low popularity of Joe Biden, gas prices going up. There's a little optimism now among Democrats because um, the gas prices are coming down for now. And um, Donald Trump's candidates seem to be more extreme, so they might not appeal in governor Senate races to the moderates who, who might swing the elections. But what do the Democrats need to be doing this year to make up for what looks like a tough hand?
1: Well, a couple of things. I think, uh, first of all, the Democrats need to focus uh, on asking every Republican candidate at every level, where do you stand on Trump? Uh, do you absolutely forthrightly uh, condemn uh his attempted destruction of democracy last on january 6 2021 uh do you condemn that do you condemn everything he did between election day and that uh, january 6th uh, and also uh, uh do you commit to be for somebody other than donald trump for president in your in your party are you willing to do something to to save your party from what's happened to it i think that's the the key question for uh, for democrats to to ask i think it's also important to look at um at uh, at social issues at uh, uh, and what the Republican history is about cutting services and to remind people that it is. All
0: right, abortion, the Supreme Court abortion ruling, that Democrats are hoping are going to help them. And
1: that's the, right. I mean, that's these are issues I think that, that Democrats need to bring to the fore. Should Biden run again? Uh, I don't know. I think he's got to decide that fairly soon. Uh, but remember, he turned out in 2020 to be the only Democrat who had the stature to beat Trump. Right. Uh, so I think that can't be
0: discounted. Well, is it different now because people are saying he's going to be so old by the time he'd be in office and his his ratings have gone so low, although that could change.
1: That could change. And I'm hopeful that the bill now that he uh, that he and uh, Schumer and Manchin have come to an agreement on will. Uh, that's will be all the
0: cinema, right? So what's cinema going to do? It depends it on. Cinema? I haven't
1: heard what she's she,
0: uh, she hasn't said anything. She, said, so she like, didn't go to the caucus. No, apparently Democrats not. Democrats so say, uh, according to the Times, Democrats in the Senate find out what their colleague Cinema is thinking based on what she has told lobbyists who report back to them. Yeah, I know that's a, it's kind of perverse. But. And it's also kind of interesting that she and Joe Manchin, two holdouts, actually disagree on a fundamental part of the bill. Like yes. they incorporated in this reconciliation bill, they incorporated items that she wanted in the past to get her support. Yes. But she and Manchin fundamentally disagree about carried interest and in sort of extra tax breaks for wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations. Right, he right. thinks they should start paying a little more. And she says, not want to have any tax cuts. Will that kind of doom it or we'll find out?
1: Well, we'll find out. I think there's a lot of pressure to, uh, to get something done. Um, and I hope they can find a way to compromise that and then hold all 50 Democrats together with the, with the vice president to to do the
0: bill. On a that, sports level, it was really fun to see Mitch McConnell for once have someone do an end run around him by having them pass the chips bill and then four hours later announce this surprise deal. Yeah, that was a delight. <laughs> <laughs> the Wall Street Journal had two straight days of just like screaming in their editorials about that end run. <laughs> Martin Looney, anything else you want to say about where politics is going now, your run for re-election, this year's elections?
1: Uh, just that I'm, I'm uh, uh, just looking forward to the campaign and to serving in another term. I, uh, I love serving in the General Assembly as much as I did when I was first elected. And uh, on the first day I, I came to the Capitol in 1981 as a House member, I was just, uh, uh, just uh, uh, completely in, in awe of that Capitol dome and what it represented. And I still feel the same way every day when I approach that capital area exit. And, and I think when, when people uh, lose that sense of, of wonder and pride in what they're doing, then it's, then it's time to uh, uh, consider doing something else. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's still fresh to me every day.
0: All right. Well, Martin Looney, it's always such a pleasure to have you on WNHHFM Dateline New Haven, our first ever guest, and I hope you'll be back again.
1: I certainly will, Paul. Always enjoy it.
0: Thanks. And I want to thank Harry Droz and Nora Grace Flood working the controls today. On WNHHFM, we're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free from the group CB, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.